Does the man make the time or does time make the man? I was asked this question in a history class one time and today I think there's a good case that has to do with a little bit of both, but also neither. Looking at the story of Joan of Arc, the maiden of Orléans this week, a woman who has more name recognition than probably any other woman in history save for Mary, mother of Jesus. What about her story is so compelling? Was it the divine intervention that makes her story so interesting to everybody, or is there more to it than that? Today we look at the story, the background, the conquests, the trials and tribulations of Joan of Arc on another episode of The Remedial Scholar. That's ancient history. I feel I was denied critical need to know information. Belongs in a museum, bro. Stop skipping your remedial class. Welcome back, everybody, to the Remedial Scholar. I am Levi. Thank you for returning, and if you're new here, thank you for joining. It sure looks great on you. I am excited to get this topic going, as you probably are as well. But we have some business to do first. Of course we do. As you all know, reviews are important to new shows, and I would love it if you are listening to go to the podcast main page on either Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or on Podchaser and leave an honest review for us. Between that and sharing us on socials is really the best way to get this show out there. To those who don't know about it, word of mouth is the best way. And simply sharing us on your Facebook would be great. Help, you know, every little bit helps. And these are the things that I would love for you to do. And it costs zero dollars. If you want to throw money my way, that would be lovely too. The link tree in the description or just Google link tree slash the remedial scholar and it will pop right up for you. Explore the links there. There's a tip button or you can go to the Captivate site, leave a tip there as well. And one last thing before we move on to Joan is that you can also check out the small merch store and I'm working on new designs as we speak. Well, not well, not as we speak. I'm doing this as, as I speak right now, right? <laughs> and that's it. We can move on to the fun stuff. And today is going to be fun. You know, this is the first episode that I've done that is uh, biographical in nature. Of course, I've told some stories of specific figures in the other episodes, but this is going to be the first episode that centers around any one specific figure. And what a specific figure to start out with. Joan of Arc. Jeanne d'Arc. If you are Frenchy, you know, that maybe that sounds a little bit better. I don't know. The French woman and uh, the most names in history, really. I, I, I wouldn't fact check it, but I'm almost certain that it has to be true. Who else? Exactly. Can't think of any. Many of these were given posthumously, especially the of Arc or the Arc. As we will find out, Jeanne had testified in her trial that uh, her village, the surname, came from the mother's side, if you were a woman. But I, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, and as is the norm. So today, we will be discussing the setting of where Joan's life, you know, takes stage. Some background of the poorly named Hundred Years' War. The conflict in which Joan finds herself in. Some of the setup with that. Then go to the origins of the maiden herself before moving right into her life. Visions, battle service, all of that. Origins won't take long as she, you know, she's very young when she first had the visions and that would lead into her becoming involved in the conflict. So really once things get going, they really get going. Obviously I've heard the story before many times in my life. I'd watched the movie starring Mia jo Jovovich. I'm pretty sure. I never know how to pronounce her name. I'm pretty sure it's Jovovich though. At an early age, uh, I watched this movie uh, with my older brother. You know, the one where she's destined to aid a man in his mission to save people and there's this evil force led by a man with a funny accent and a weird haircut 
and his cronies fifth element obviously <laughs> uh, just kidding it's the uh the messenger the story of joan of arc that's the real movie i was referring to they did come out one year apart though uh which you know it's interesting how you can just boil the plot elements like that and it'll describe two vastly different movies well maybe that's not impressive i don't know this movie is actually uh the way in which I was able to get out of trouble with a teacher in high school. I mentioned this at the end of the last week's episode, but here's the whole story. So I took three years of French in high school. Do I speak the language? No. Can I understand some of it to this day? Also, no. I do know vaguely how to pronounce some things. So that's what three years of uh, Americanized French class at public school will get you. Anyway, that class was was a joke in all honesty, but <laughs> not to the teachers. Well, like, I don't, I don't know. I don't know who to blame in that situation, but. Uh, you know, I took the class because I failed Spanish my freshman year, and instead of retaking Spanish, I was thinking with my dumb high school brain and thought that French is the language of love, and there would be cute girls in my class. Newsflash to high school, Levi. There were cute girls in every class. That's besides the point. So I'm in French class, I think maybe French 2, which would have been my junior year. My friend and I were talking during the documentary of Joan of Arc that we were watching, which might be a cardinal sin in French class, I don't know. Uh, the teacher did not like this, and she asked me if I would like to tell the class about Jones, since I clearly knew more than the documentary. You know, one of those, uh, moments where the teacher's trying to go, hey, you don't know what you're talking about, or, like, you're talking, and it's not about this, so either teach us something or shut up, basically. Because, you know, I, <laughs> I wouldn't talk over a movie if I wasn't sure I knew everything. Definitely not because I, you know, was an ADHD-riddled teenager sitting next to all my friends. Anyway. Having seen the, the movie Messenger about Joan, I confidently said that I could teach everyone about her. So I told the class that she had angelic visions from an early age and they guided her to help the French defeat the English during the Hundred Years War and then was burned at the stake because they said she was a witch. And <laughs> this made the teacher give a beatific smile and then told me to pay attention to the movie moved on. It was a small victory, but a victory nonetheless for the rebellious teenager Levi. And obviously one I remember pretty vividly because here, here I am telling you. I was wrong about it though. Well, not wrong. That quick summary is pretty part and parcel to how everyone imagines the story of Joan of Arc, right? Unless you have done any research on her, you wouldn't know any difference than what little knowledge is shared in school or seen in movies. There's so much more to her story than that simple reduction. I hope everyone takes away from this that you can, you know, boil her story down to those key things. But... Where's the fun in that? So with that being said, let's get into it. The specific date of Joan's birth is not known and is thought to be around the year 1412. This is pretty far along into the Hundred Years War and before we get to Joan and her life, we need to understand the war that she was so pivotal in. Knowing what the war was and who involved and why it was even fought helps to place Joan in that story much better than just talking about Joan until her 16th birthday, switching it back up, going, you know, talking about the Hundred Years War and then back to Joan. So anyway. What was the Hundred Years' War? Well, it was a war that lasted 116 years, which does not roll off the tongue nearly as nicely. Also, it wasn't really a war that was like a real, real war. It was not a hundred years of non-stop fighting. It was 116 years of sporadic conflict between the English and the French, which stemmed from land disputes and claims to the throne. The royal lineage of these two kingdoms was very messy back in the Middle Ages, marrying off daughters to other crowns, and so on. I'll summarize it as best as I can, but it's still kind of complicated. The events that helped kick off the Hundred Years' War actually started in the years of William the Conqueror. You see, William the Conqueror, and that nickname, 
he was uh, the king of the Normans, but he captured England and thus was the first Norman king of England. But he was also a vassal and the Duke of France. This would create a very convoluted intermarriage type scenario between the two nations. William is also the sixth great grandfather of the man who would be the leading factor at the beginning of the Hundred Years' War. In 1328, the French king Charles IV died and his nephew Edward III felt that he had a claim to the throne. Edward, awkwardly enough, was the king of England at the time. This didn't jive well with uh, the French nobles, and they felt it was better to have Philip VI, who was the cousin to Charles, uh, enter as the you know king. This, among other things, caused England to declare war on the French in 1337. Edward III and his son Edward, so many Edwards, <laughs> uh, instigated what is called the Edwardian phase of the Hundred Years' War. An interesting point, Edward III's son, Edward for whatever reason not named Eddie IV, Edward was also known as the Black Prince, which is not the point, but he got his name either from a black shield he used and or armor or his brutal reputation. What the interesting point I was going to make is that he is in the movie A Knight's Tale. If you've seen this movie, he is the knight who Heath Ledger's William slash Ulrich decides to joust against after finding out he is royalty. Played expertly by James Purefoy. Anyway. The two Eds, <laughs> one short of a medieval Ed, Ed, and Eddie episode, uh, begin their battles against the French. Really great timing because the Black Plague was moving its way through Europe at the, t at the same time. It would be interesting to know how these dudes felt about their victories while some of something like that is happening. Yeah, we won, but like half their army fell over and died almost immediately. I'm not even sure they were alive. Maybe they, maybe they just stood up with some wooden dowels making it look like they were standing. No. Like I said, the war started in 1337, the Black Plague wasn't really going until the 1340s. They did th fight throughout the length of it, you know, a treaty taking place in 1360, which afforded England a large section of French French lands, northern France, and, and in exchange, Edward III stated he would drop his claim to the throne of France. A few years later, in 1378, French King Charles V took back quite a bit of this lost land, which was, you know, nice, but... But it was still a very hard time in post-plague France, and all of Europe really, but France got hit pretty hard. <laughs> Two years following this, however, Charles V died and left Charles VI to reign at the age of 11. It's bad enough with him being 11, but Charles VI is also notorious in history as experiencing many psychotic episodes and being stricken with mental illness. Since he was so young, he was essentially under heavy advisement by the nobles of his court. But at the age of 20, he emancipated himself from the advising and following this, a few interesting things happened. The first being in a fight against his own soldiers in the middle of the woods. Apparently a leper came out uh, to the traveling army, went straight to the king, shouted charges of betrayal and traitors. Soon after, someone dropped a lance and knocked some armor around and Charles VI felt that he was under attack. And since that leper had said it, you know, could be a thing, he started swinging his sword around at the men <laughs> and, you know, the men that were around him uh, before a group of them were able to pull him from his horse and lay him down on the ground and then he passed out. He ended up killing four of his own men in this instance and you know he was pretty much plagued by issues ever since. This is by no means the precipice of it but you know that story is super interesting. So that happens a few other things also occur including forgetting who he was, thinking he was St. George, forgetting who his wife and children were, refusing to bathe or change clothes for months on end, and my personal favorite, believing he was made of glass. He would even have uh, them put iron rods sewn into his clothes so that if he were touched, he would not shatter, which, you know, I, <laughs> you're still gonna shatter if you were made of glass. The clothes wouldn't, 
but I guess trying to rationalize behaviors of somebody afflicted with this type of uh, mental illness isn't the best move. Even dubbed the Mad King or Charles the Mad, Charles proved to be unstable. And so in the times of his delirium, his brother Louis of Orléans, and I realize, you know, it's pronounced Orléans, but with his name being Louis, I want to pronounce it Louis of Orly. Doesn't make any sense, but the, the name Louis always trips me up. <laughs> I guess I could pronounce them both wrong and call him Louis of Orléans. Anyway. <laughs> anyway. Louis of Orléans would fill in, along with their uncle, Philip of Burgundy. By 1407, the Orléans and Burgundy houses were fighting against one another, you know, over who got to be the de facto leader while the king was yelling at squirrels and polishing his skin. <laughs> this led to the assassination of Louis by his cousin, or the order was given by his cousin, John, son of Philip. Why is all this important? Well, combine that with the leadership of the post-plague issues France faced, economic and the like and put it in perspective that England bounced back faster and better than France did, and you will know that uh, England saw some chances and took them, kind of. England had its own issues for sure. After Edward III died in 1377, Richard II was crowned at the age of 10. Richard II was son of Edward the Black Prince, and you're probably wondering why his dad didn't take the crown after his grandpappy died. Well, the Black Prince died of McGill's Pop. That's for my fellow time sucker and Dan's that listen, you get it. For those of you who don't know, this is dysentery, and uh, one of the scariest ways to die, in my opinion. If you don't know, it's uh, just violent death by diarrhea, essentially. Anyway, back to Richard II. He actually married the, the Mad King's youngest daughter in 1396 to maintain a level of peace. You know, he had a previous marriage, but she died in 1394, as most women did, I'm assuming, in childbirth. Charles VI's daughter, well, she was seven when they got married, so... <laughs> I guess it worked as a tool in the eyes of the French, but if I was her, if I was her dad and not insane, I guess it worked as a tool in the eyes of the French, but if I was her dad and not insane, I wouldn't feel very confident in that. You know, this, this did not make the English regent super excited and led to his being deposed and subsequent murder by his cousin in 1400. So many cousin killings. Oddly enough, this did free the child bride, who would have been 11 at the time. Good news, she found love again. In 1406, at 17, a little more appropriate this time, she married Charles, Duke of Orléans. Now, you might be keeping score, but if you're not, Charles was the son of Louis of Orléans, Crazy Charles's brother. Crazy Charles is her father, which makes this other Charles her cousin. So she married cousin Charles and then died at childbirth at 19. What a wild life this girl had. Like, big theme this week. Real short, intense lives of women in <laughs> medieval France. Henry IV taking over after after murdering his cousin, which I guess is slightly better than marrying one, I don't really know, uh, was under specific orders. The killing of his cousin made people super weary about him leading England and thus forced him into a kind of focus on local issues only. Even though Henry IV wanted to seize opportunities against the French, he could not, which led to one of the somewhat peaceful sections of the war. Not to say there was no violence because France was a mess. <laughs> Charles the Mad still sat on the throne and as I mentioned, John of Burgundy having Louis killed, this spun into a civil war of sorts called the Armagnac Burgundian Civil War. It was not just a it was not just power that the two houses fought over. Apparently Louis was quite the ladies' man and was accused of attempting to or having seduced John of Burgundy's wife as well as Isabeau, who was Charles the Mad's wife, Queen of France, and maybe Louis even maybe being the illegitimate father of Charles the Seventh, who will come into play a little bit later. Either way, Louis gets murdered, his son Charles, cousin Charles, engages in a conflict against the Burgundians, marries his cousin Isabella until she dies during childbirth. 
he makes another strategic marriage and marries Bonnie to Armanach. I'm I'm 90% sure I'm pronouncing that right, but I don't know. <laughs> this makes the name of the Civil War make more sense. Armanox versus the Burgundians, and both of them tried to get the English to assist them. Meanwhile, Henry V ascended to the English throne after the fourth's death in 1413. He sees the craziness happening in France and has some pretty great ideas. This is further put into place when, in 1419, John of Burgundy was uh, given a taste of his own medicine and then assassinated by the Armanox. His son, another Philip, <laughs> these people had no creativity <laughs> in names whatsoever. So Philip, son of John, who is son of Philip, becomes the Duke of Burgundy. And uh, he's like, all right, England, what can I do to get some help? And then this de destabilizes the entire French monarchy, losing support of Burgundy, puts the French in a position to sign the Treaty of Troyes, which came at the heels of several French defeats at the hands of the English. This is the same place I mispronounced last week. Uh, the bishop of this place was the one who uh, said that the Shroud of Turin was expertly painted, if you remember. If not, go listen and learn some. JK. <laughs> anyway, the Treaty of Troyes was like this, like the Treaty of Versailles on steroids. This treaty is what directly leads to our topic. The victories mounted by the English in the form of Agincourt and Harfleur, Caen and Rouen, all being resounding wins, letting the English take big chunks of Normandy, Meanwhile, the Burgundians had to uh, had captured Paris in 14, 1418, and all these things pushed the French to sign the Treaty of Troyes. Treaty of Troyes uh, stated that the French would denounce Charles VII as their heir to as the heir to Charles VI, Crazy Pants McGee, and instead recognize Henry V and his children due to his marrying of a different daughter of Charles VI, Catherine of Valois. She was married at 19, which is a heck of a lot better than her sister. Anyway, <laughs> this treaty was. Supported by Burgundy and Brittany as well. So, three forces opposed to Charles VII and his claim to the throne. Not good odds, right? And honestly, things would not have turned out well for the French had this next bit not happened. Henry V died in August of 1422, leaving his infant child, Henry VI, as successor. Which really means regents and nobles are the ones with the power, but is not unified as a monarchy would be. Shortly after, in October the same year, Charles the Mad dies. Charles VII claimed the throne, but of course, due to the Treaty of Troyes, he was not recognized and the fight ensued. This is the place in which we find Joan entering the picture, so let's take a slight step back and begin her tale. So Joan was probably born in the year 1412 in the village of Domremy, which was renamed Domremy la Pucelle after her death in uh, to honor her. Her father, Jacques d'Arc, and mother, Isabelle Romé, both farmers in the village of Domremy. The name d'Arc from her father is believed to have come from Arcamberios, where his ancestors are supposedly from. Her mother was very devout, even allegedly making a pilgrimage to Rome, which would be, uh, which could be how she earned her last name, which I think is a testament to, you know, the amount of religion Joan would have experienced as a child. Of course, everybody was religious back then, but to travel third, uh, to travel in the 13th and 14th centuries from France to Rome as a woman, pretty risky. So I think, you know, that kind of speaks to her passion. As a young child, a distinction I have to make since, you know, she died so young, Joan would help around the farm doing different domestic chores and also spent a lot of time praying, a lot of time in the church. Some sources I've read say that her father tended a farmland that was around 50 acres, which is, you know, nothing to sneeze at, but this was not putting them into royal or noble categories by any means. Joan herself, illiterate and is assumed her parents to be as well. She also wasn't an only child, you know, she had three older brothers and a sister, which, you know, if medieval France is anything like modern times, she grew up pretty tough. Three brothers. Her village life, not so quiet. The Burgundians often uh, being 
you know, the controlling force in the area, uh, made raids through Domremy, one time even lighting the town ablaze and stealing cattle. It is not known if things like this had any effect, but I imagine the turbulence of an existence would lean, you know, further into religion to help, right? And, you know, throughout her adolescence, she also spent time learning different things like domestic duties that people describe as learning to sew and spin wool and all this stuff, so... That was, that was how her life. So around the age of 13, which would have been in 1424, 1425, Joan experienced something unbelievable in the form of visions of an angel speaking to her while she was tending the garden. These visions originally being pretty mundane in comparison to how we think of her visions now. During, you know, during her trial, Joan testified that the visions at first were given to her after, you know, bright light was shown and then St. Michael's voice came to her and gave her instructions, you know, things like how to live a good life, uh, how to be a good pupil of Christ, that kind of thing. St. Michael, being the patron saint of Domremy, came to her often and frequented when church bells rang. Both interesting things to think about later on in the story. Michael guided uh, Joan in piety and, you know, how to be a good child to her parents as well as challenging her to remain a virgin. She stated that she heard the voices many times before she realized who was speaking to her. She kept the visions quiet from others, maybe protect herself from the heretical charges or uh, that could befall her or being 13, maybe just self-preservation from medieval French bullies. The worst of the worst, I'm pretty sure. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I do think that these things don't happen in a vacuum and Things didn't happen like they happen in a movie. Although I'm reading from one year to the next, there are day-to-day -day things that are happening. So it's not entirely out of the realm of possibility that these kids could have been bullying her or anyone around the village, right? Kids are ruthless. I mentioned that the visions would have started around 1424, 1425, a few years into the heavy turmoil of claiming of the French throne, right? 1422, when both Charles the Mad and Henry V both passed. This would have been cause for talk in regular day-to-day -day conversations around the countryside and Jones Village. You know, that was no exception. With all the talk happening, some some sources say it was pretty split in the lands on who they felt were, uh, who they felt should be the king. But a lot of French held the same pride in their kingdom and believed believed in old Chuck Number Seven to be their rightful heir. Among those were apparently the saints that visited Joan. Soon enough, Joan expressed that Saint Michael told her Saint Catherine and Saint Margaret would be visiting her. And that she was to follow their instructions and counsel. These additional saints would guide her and Michael informed her that uh, she needed to believe truly the things that the, she was being told from them as it was God's plan for her. It is believed to be Catherine of Alexandria and Margaret of Antioch, both of them being martyrs and uh, of their beliefs and virgin saints, which if it is true, real writing on the wall to Joan's destiny. If not, then it could also be pretty telling about how well aware she was of the impending doom during the trial, which is where a lot of these stories were told from Joan herself. Anyway, by the time she turned 17, the voices went from telling her how to be a good person in the eyes of God, uh, but now they were speaking on what was expected. St. Michael expressed a heavy task in front of her and gave her instructions of you know, the plans of assisting the French to claim the throne. In the trials of Joan, she spoke on how she was initially hesitant to the calling. She believed herself not to be worthy of the task and even told Michael that she was you no know, poor girl who knew nothing of battle and warfare. But eventually she relented under God's direction and that she believed in the charge for herself. So at around either 16 or 17, Joan begins to talk about her mission and how the Archangel Michael instructed her that she was needed to help Charles VII ascend back to the throne. So she began to seek out someone who could get her, you know, physical meeting with the Dauphin, a term used to describe the next in line for the throne. If you're familiar with the story of Joan, you will probably remember that there was also a prophecy of sorts that stated an armed virgin would be the savior of France. 
there's a couple reasons why this you know prophecy could have came out number one is that uh the the wizard merlin from king arthur legends is created this prophecy but you know he's not real so we can't exactly put a lot of faith into that there was also there's also another one that may or may not have came in response to isabeau the uh queen queen of uh charles the sixth and how she was sleeping around and basically they're like we need a you know a pious and virgin woman to save us because this harlot screwed us over essentially but still there were the whisperings of these uh supposed prophecies and thoughts about the savior of france and after the treaty of Troyes, there was uh i think you know many people would have been desperate for something right so young joan was tasked with trying to make this vision a reality she had to gain travel to the head of armanac court to see charles but with how divided and cut up france was at the time there's no real straight shot she needed at the very least an escort I've seen it placed as either her uncle or her dad took her in May of 19, uh, in May of 1428 to meet a man named Robert, uh, probably Robert, right? Du Baldencourt? Yeah, nailed it. Uh, <laughs> or Robert de Baldencourt, uh, who was commander of a stronghold in uh, Vacalour, uh, one that supported Charles. She told him that she needed an audience with the king, which, you know, Robert was, you know, not going to entertain. <laughs> he told her that her father should give her a good whooping to set her right again, which I think is fair. You know, this guy is the commander of a, a stronghold in a section of France that is full of Burgundians and, you know, probably pretty stressed out. Then you get this 17-year-old peasant girl comes into your Mojo Dojo Casa house, tells you that you need to take her to see the king. Yeah, he probably had a few other things to worry about. So she goes home, probably pretty upset that her visions would lead her to such a broken path to success, right? Due either to good luck or bad, soon the region was attacked by the Burgundians in July of the same year, who had been hearing rumors of the supposed savior of France and essentially wanted to send a message or maybe wanted to squash any hope that the French court might have had. They specifically raided Domremy, which uh, set the town on fire, which I had mentioned earlier. In this raid, crops were destroyed, animals were taken, and Joan and her family, as well as other villagers, had to flee. After the raid, she returned to Vaucalour, tried again to get audience with Chuck number 7, Again, Robert turned her away, the difference this time being that some of his soldiers spoke on her behalf and she was summoned to the uh, Chenon, where Charles's court was held. Robert assigned her an escort and jo Joan decided to do some creative wardrobing to aid in her dangerous trip. She also had a letter written uh, for her, because she couldn't read or write, to be sent ahead of her and she signed it La Pucelle or The Maid. The trip itself would have been close to 300 miles, which had been around an 11-day trip back then. This trip would have been full of different encounters, so the idea that, you know, she needed to disguise herself as to not draw suspicion, especially when the Burgundians are now looking for her. So she cuts her hair short and dresses like a man, and a look that she would carry for the rest of her life. She also carried herself just as the men did in this journey, wanting no special treatment, and this was something that really gained favor for her in the eyes of the soldiers that surrounded her. Joan arrived early, 1429. The exact method of how she was brought in is not known, but most prevailing story is that is that Charles and his court had a plan. They disguised the true Charles and placed a fake in his place in the court. When Joan arrived, it's said that she correctly identified the to-be king. This was impressive enough for the king, but he still wanted to interview the girl, see exactly what her plans were. Nobody knows what was said in this meeting, but we do know that Charles left the meeting impressed and full of belief. He then charged the local church to have their own interview slash interrogation of sorts where they were to judge her piety among other things they did not find anything that would dissuade the faith and that was now growing around the young maid 
This took weeks, and once done, they uh, asked her if she could demonstrate or share her abilities, but allegedly she just told them that they should send her to Orléans and let her prove herself. And they agreed. In, 14, in late April of 1429, Joan was joined by a small group of soldiers to join the effort to lift the siege in Orléans, which had been going on for quite a while. Until this, they were really SOL. They had no real plan of freeing the besieged city. While Joan wasn't giving any weapons, she was fitted with armor, given banner to carry into battle, which makes sense. That would be, you know, total thrashing with her <laughs> severe lack of training at this point. And while she wasn't, you know, assigned or given a weapon, she did find one, kind of. She instructed some people to find a sword which was located at St. Catherine's Church in Firbois. And that, that would be behind an altar. And that's pretty cool. A little bit of magical medieval loot drops going on. That's always helpful mission itself was seen as a test to the uh, divine power that was behind Joan and having her serve as essentially a hype train. While Orléans was besieged, there was still a way to get you know, into the city and Joan was brought in by a commander which was met with a resounding amount of support. These people were desperate, right? I assume a lot of these soldiers and people were aware of the legend and prophesizing going on around the time, rumblings of the one true savior and all that. In the actual fighting, Joan would be, you know, the inspiration of the men who were fighting, which quickly began, you know, and turned the tide. May 4th, the once defending French were now attacking, and after a day, they were pleased with the efforts uh, the now-inspired army was making. On the next day, no fighting took place due to it being Ascension Thursday, which is kind of wild how formal, you know, some of these events could be. Like, hey, we want to kill all of you, but like, not, not today. It's a Jesus day, okay? So the next few days after that, the English began to retreat. You know, with the French advancing and some commanders believed it to be, uh, have been enough, stopped, and Joan was encouraging them to continue. This theme happened a couple more times and led to the siege of an English fortification on the 7th, in which Joan was injured. She was hit by an arrow between the neck and shoulder, which sounds like a terrible place to get hit with an arrow. There's a lot of really important things going on in that region. Also, any place would probably suck to get hit by an arrow. Hands down, would rather be shot by a non-hollow point round than an arrow. Uh... Like, just through and through, the arrow's meant to dig in and stick there and suck to pull out. I don't know. She was removed from the fighting, but then she returned further, uh, you know, to further rally the troops shortly after. I think it was a day later. And that, you know, just emboldened the French belief in her further. She returned, her banner raised, inspiring yet another victory, and the English had begun to retreat by the, by the 8th of May. As mentioned, the faith of her divine force was put to the test, and... They asked, you know, what she could do to demonstrate, and she told them to send her to Orléans, and this was a victory. The French had a sign of life in their fight against the English. The English, on the other hand, well, I think they probably thought she was some sort of devil temptress, which is about how it always works, right? One team gets the praise of God, and the other team is being challenged by the devil. While this was all going on, the French felt that they had done good work, but Joan was adamant that the fight continued. The target she felt they should move on towards next was Reims, uh, where they could crown Charles. The only issue that Reim be on, uh, lay on the other side of English-controlled lands. Joan joined up with John II, who was Duke of Alencon, and his army. Uh, they cleared a way through several bridge towns, Jargot, Mont-sur-Loire, and Bois-Gency. All French sound, all more French sounding than the last one. Once this was done, they had their they had their route for soon made king to continue to Reim. This actual the actual conquest happened throughout the month of June with the you know beginning 11th beginning on the 11th with Joan and Joan and Co besieging Jar Jargot. Joan upon arrival had sent a letter demanding surrender which is something she did pretty often but the English did not agree. Joan suggested attacking the walls of the city which resulted in the town being taken shortly after. 
you know, in in the reading for this, they make it sound super impressive, but like that's your second option of a walled city. Like front gate first, then walls. Like <laughs> anyway, she tried to scale the walls with her comrades, and she was hit with a stone in the head. Luckily, having her helmet on, she survived. Uh, Monsieur Loire was pretty quick. The English retreating to a castle on the other side of the river that the French were trying to cross, which was the Loire River, leading to the final showdown at Boisensi. The army that had retreated regrouped with an English army coming from Paris and came to relieve the, relieve the English at Boisensi, who had already surrendered and had no clue that help was on the way. So that army left, and Jones thought they should pursue them, and with that they did, and which led to a victory for the Amanant forces. English tried to be sneaky with their actions against the French, but the French sniffed out any ambush, and the victory was massive for the French. Onwards, the French marched, trying to reach Reims so they could uh, crown their king. They went forward, liberating places like Auxerre, Troyes, which was probably a wonderful victory as it was the signing of the original humili humiliating Treaty of Troyes. On the 16th of July, Reim welcomed the army at what was once seeming and what was once a seeming impossible task, the simple addition of a teen inspired by God had done the unthinkable. The next day Charles was crowned, during which Joan was given a place of honor. She told the crown she told the crowd at the ceremony that God's will was done in a gesture where she knelt before him and called him her king. With Charles being crowned, Burgundy began a shift of peace. Things began to seem like they, you know, were worked out. That's it. Game over, right? Wrong. Joan now felt a higher calling within herself, not from visions, but maybe a sense of duty. There was still Paris to go, after all. So the Armanoc army continued with Joan in tow. The siege of Paris wasn't an easy one. On September 8th, that's right, big day in history. My birthday for anybody who is unaware. Anyway, on September 8th, Joan is shot in the leg by a crossbow, which I feel like might be only less bad than getting shot in the neck with a bow and arrow. Probably by a small margin. I don't plan on testing it out. Joan wasn't the only one hurt or injured. Armanoc forces lost 1,500 men in an attempt, and Charles ordered the retreat. Joan and John II, Duke from earlier, arranged plans to uh, you know, continue, but Charles found out and had the bridge they planned on using dismantled since he feared that their actions would further hinder negotiations he had with the Burgundian. Charles had already managed to negotiate a truce, which was initially that of four months, but got extended through Easter of 1430. While this truce was ongoing, the Duke of Burgundy began to take over towns that had begun, uh, been negotiated as his but still held out, and Joan assembled a volunteer army to help some of these places. One such place was Compagne, a town uh, slightly north of Paris and slightly west of Reims. She arrived at the town in May of 1430. In the battle, she was knocked from her horse and uh, found herself behind enemy lines. She gave up, letting herself get captured, probably believing that Charles would allow her to be traded back, and this was really the beginning of the end. Joan was captured by the Burgundians, who at this point were not very friendly with Charles and had not been working with the English, or, and had been working with the English for a long time, so they were kind of cozied up relatively well already. The English saw some sinister type of retribution against the, you know, the devil, the so-called maid of Orléans. The woman who they felt damaged their claim to the French throne. Also, meanwhile, the English had their infant king coronated and was now a whopping nine years old, which, you know, you might as well, also a little old at that point, might as well have a foot in the grave. Anyway, she was held by the Burgundians for months on end, threatened with violence, both physical and sexual. She even made an attempt to leap from the castle, but she survived, though there is speculation that this was due to her finding out where she was about to be going. In November of 1430, Joan was essentially exchanged to the English by the Burgundians for a price of 10,000 francs and brought to Rouen. I think the English probably would have paid way more, but who knows. Charles did not even attempt to regain Joan, and this was probably heartbreaking to her. 
While the English paid the hefty sum, their legal court was not the trying force. Joan, Joan was being tried by a church court of sorts, racking up 70 charges, which I'm no expert, but I think I'm pretty sure she would get a you know a gold-selling rap album based off her street cred alone here. Some of these things were general, like heresy or witchcraft, then others more specific, like dressing like a man, predicting the future, and even theft. I know it might seem silly wearing the men's clothes, but it was a biblical law, so that was, you know, pretty hard to beat. Before the trial had begun, she was held in a standing iron cage, which she would stay in until December. Her virginity was also something very focused on, the midwives checking her in whatever medical way they deemed to be effective, which I am sure is probably wrong medically, but, you know, <laughs> that's what they did back then. That was also a major theme of the trial, a lot of, a lot of theology that was aimed to trip her up, the, the supposed divine woman. While being charged by the church, she was held in a military prison, which is, you know, pretty bad conditions. I don't think anybody's really surprised by that. She was harassed by jailers, left in a cell with a dirty bed, barely fed. You know, real double tree level service here. The trial itself was probably where Joan was given any reprieve. Beginning officially in March of 1431, she had been fielding questions in an unofficial manner since January of 1431. She was interrogated without actually knowing what her charges were, and even despite this, they were forced to throw out almost 60 charges. It just shows the, you know, intelligence she had and how well-versed she was in the scripture and, and the theological law that they tried to trap her up in. One famous example I found was when she was asked if she knew if she was in God's grace, she responded by stating that if she was not in God's grace, she hoped God would put her there and if she was in god's grace then she uh hoped she would remain and this apparently stunned the audience and things like this made the public trial much more private uh, they moved it to her cell because they didn't want the public watching her embarrass these people even though this was the case one cleric uh, abdicated his position feeling that the trial would be unfair in her confessions coerced some things that have been alleged but no record of actually occurring or just mistranslations of what was happening were you know threats of rape and torture to combat these things that i'm pretty sure she was aware of the potential of you know a sexual assault of any kind to the point of uh, fashioning her own pseudo chastity belt she combined a bunch of different fabrics and then cord and then tied into this very intricately knotted up contraption that would be a pain in the butt to get off, and if anybody was to get it off, people would know that kind of thing. However, they dealt with that, and all of that kind of leads me to believe that hopefully it did not happen. Now, the exception being when she was given a mock execution. Uh, at, at some point, they just kind of got tired of dealing with her, and uh, she was given a mock execution that, you know, she was tied to the stake and told to recant her lies and admit guilt, and she eventually had done so. I guess the fear of being in the actual spot probably... Probably made a switch in her mind. Two main things they cared about over anything else were, you know, the visions of angels and, you know, the divine virginity and the clothing of the men uh, that she was wearing. And it's wild to me that, you know, religion founded fundamentally on believing a lot of wild stories decided, you know, down the road to turn people away at, you know, with this level of like passion for the teachings. I'm in no way religious, but this is wild to me that they can just be so sure that she's a heretic because she was on the other team. Like if they peeled back that thought process a little bit further jesus could very well not have been on their team either joan had withstood months of insane and outlandish questions hours upon hours of questioning poor conditions clergy finally gotten down to brass tacks with her so like i said they did the mock execution gave her the old tomato the ultimatum uh told her not to wear men's clothes and she would be able to live if she confessed she signed the confession and i mentioned how specific 
These guys, they really cared about the men's clothes thing, which is real, you know, key to this next part. And it also kind of makes some suspicions on how this next part goes. So I'm going to do it Tarantino style, right? As the guard straps Joan to the stake, one guard giving her a small wooden cross to hold on to for comfort, the clergy looks upon her in disgust. Still, after all this, you choose to wear the cloth of a man? How dare you? Who are you to defy the law of the God as written in that of Deuteronomy? Chapter 22, verse 5. A woman shall not wear what pertaineth unto a man, neither, a, neither shall a man put on a woman's garment. For all that do are abomination unto the Lord thy God. As a striking plate scratches a fire to life from the 20th century Zippo. Yes, this is actually a modern retelling of this tale in the, ver in the vision of Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet. Anyway, the lighting of the lighter sparks a flashback effect into the cramped and dreary cell of the military prison. Joan being accosted by guards only left with men's clothing in her cell. The maniacal laughter of the English brutes echoing off the wall of the cobblestone walls as she has to choose to be either naked before these mongoloids or to break her confession and wear the men's cloth once again. When the clergy find her, she is still wearing those clothes and thus brought to execution. The other version is that a flash of light comes to her and she lays in the dark cell at nighttime. Her eyes struggle to focus from the lack of proper food, but she finds angels visiting her once again. She is challenged by them to stick to her personal virtues and thus, once again, dressed like a man. Either version leads to the same unfortunate fate. It is actually interesting how much of this testimony is available also, like like, I, of course, had to rely on translated sources, but there's quite a lot of this stuff that has been, you know, endured for these years. And the next part being one of them. On May 30th, 1431, Joan was brought to Place de Ville Moche. And may or may not have been given a small wooden cross. And then she was then tied to the stake and burnt alive. Unlike most of these kinds of uh, executions, the executioner was ordered not to give her any mercy, which would be, you know, killing her before the flames had. I, for one, would like to never end up being burnt alive that and drowning are like two of the least exciting ways to go closely followed by number three which is the slow stab from saving private ryan anyway the fire was lit as it consumed her screams of a terrified child rang out throughout the square make no mistake she was a child she's only 19 and her last words were prayers to jesus basically just screaming out jesus's name over this event also had an effect on bystanders which which was said to be you know in the thousands maybe even tens of thousands. One woman saw Jesus in the fire. Another man who hated her passed out and had hallucinations of doves flying from France as she died, you know, symbolizing that she was moving on and this virtuous and, you know, pure thing was leaving France, maybe abandoning it. She would be burnt three times in total, make sure her body was, you know, over and gone and then thrown into the river Seine. Executioner allegedly had to had been unable to burn her organs, which felt was, you know, a miracle of sorts. And so he went to the clergy and said so and was like weeping. Now, some historians believe this event to be a very important point in history in terms of how, you know, witch trials and witch hunts were carried out. Hundreds of thousands of women would meet a similar fate following this of Joan with, you know, all of which many of the charges being nonsense almost all of the charges probably being nonsense maybe there was one or two accurate ones you know broken clocks right what twice a day <laughs> later that same year young king henry was crowned as the french king but of course this was not to last and that brings us to the end of joan joan of arc's life but not really her story right almost 19 years after the 19 year old was put to death the hundred years war was finally at its ending actions charles VII had been making some major conquests and progress philip iii of burgundy had made themselves allies with france and charles 
which freed Chuck to organize his nation a little bit better and to gear up for their next moves. In 1449, Charles and co. took back Rouen, and the next year they had moved on to regain Normandy, then Glasgow, which was taken back by the English, and then back by the French once again in 1453. This formally was the last major battle of the Hundred Years' War. While they technically remained at war for a few more decades, Henry had relinquished the crown of France in 1453, and then the War of Roses began two years later, which would make England pretty turbulent to say the least. 1455 was also the year in which an appeal was conducted on the grounds of Joan not being given a fair trial. I think they saw the success and their final standing after her inspiration came at such a critical time for them and they had to do something. Informally, Charles had a member of the same religious college that the clergy who condemned her were a part of look into it and found that, you know, it was a farce. A total kangaroo court that led to a man being appointed uh, who would investigate for four years to find out the truth of her trial. I bet his podcast would be so good. Anyway, they had a... They had what was called a rehabilitation trial, and I am imagining the dumbest visual. It's just a pile of ashes with them yelling at her trying to get her to be rehabilitated. I'm dumb. I don't know. I don't know what you want, but it made me laugh. Anyway, in 1455, the trial began. Over 100 witnesses were called. Joan's mother even showing up, which is awesome. Isabel, who was born around 1377, goes to the trial to defend her little girl. That's pretty awesome. Her father probably would have been there, but he is recorded to have died in 1431. No cause of death is listed, but suspicion is that he died from grief of his daughter's, daughter's death, which makes sense. You know, he had uh, mostly boys and then two girls, and that probably softened this, you know, medieval French man's heart, right? People dying of broken hearts is also, you know, really interesting phenomenon that you see. You see it with, like, old married couples who die at 80, one will go, and then a few months later, the other one just kind of gives out too. Her mom didn't, though. She held out and represented her at this thing, and the court found the trial to be you know bogus every charge against her negated in one article i found it was said her execution was nullified and i was like yeah i don't know if that's how that works but that's yeah, okay the, the investigator who spent all the time looking for the truth jean brawl uh is is to thank in large part for his massive episode is to thank for his large uh is to thank in large part for his massive effort in gathering all that information. Pope Calixtus III signing off on, uh, signed off on this, which was cool. And also, what a cool Pope name. I'm tired of Pope Francis, Pope Dilbert, Pope John Paul. Ugh. Give me one good Pope Calixtus any day. Quick, almost 500 years later, she was beatified by Pope Pius X in 1909, canonized by Pope Benedict XV in 1920 as a virgin saint. Uh, not a martyr saint or martyr virgin saint due to the fact that she was put to death by a canonical court and they executed her for her actions not her faith apparently because you know that's how that works but she's been venerated as a martyr since then and i think anyone who, you know who disagrees is probably pretty foolish at the very least definitely a martyr joan not only inspired the french in one of their weaker points during the hundred years war but you know she did so with lasting effects many historians argue that uh you know her addition to the french was a crucial one and that her momentum you know helped create a resurgence in their fight and without it charles would have lost everything and that could have had insane effects on our history I know France gets turned into a punching bag in modern media and online, but they were instrumental in so many aspects that lead, you know, led to our current lives. No France means no Napoleon. Napoleon, even praising Joan in 14 or in 1803, Napoleon Bonaparte reinstated a festival that had been held in Joan's honor until 1793. He also unveiled the creation of a new Joan statue in Orléans, stating, "Quote." 
The illustrious Joan proved that there is no miracle which French genius cannot accomplish when national independence is threatened, end quote. And kind of, I mean, <laughs> thinking about World War II, France, a little bit of a different story, but, you know, neither here nor there. Anyway, without Napoleon, much of Europe would be very different. Without France, that also means, you know, nobody to foot the bills for the pesky farmers in the colonies across the Atlantic Ocean to gain independence from the British Empire. Looking at it like that, you know, it's really interesting to see the domino effect in which takes place. Her image was used as an inspiring force for the French in World War I. Same happened in World War II, but, you know, every side in World War II, France, used her. So, that kind of diminished it. You know, the Vichy government we learned about also used her image, which you know, taints it a little, little bit, you know, bastardizing someone who stood for something very specific and use it for a propaganda tool. I don't know. I, maybe that's just me. What I do know is to this day, Joan serves as an image for French pride. Her legacy, while probably confusing to most, is impressive. And the fact that she was really only on the scene for slightly longer than a year is impressive as well. Poems, plays, movies, music, all that have been written about her. Hundreds of paintings, images dedicated to her can be found all over the place. But that's not really the end of the story. I purposely left this bit, you know, for the very end because I wanted you know, the story told as it would have been told during her trial so you could all make up your own minds. Many believe now that with Joan's visions, a lot can be attributed to mental illness. Among these supposed illnesses are schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, epilepsy, hysteria, ergot poisoning, and tuberculoma. There is really only records of her life to go off of, since they were especially focused on religious aspects and in the trial, the religiousness of her claims, the symptoms would have been either attributed to that or ignored mostly. One thing I, uh, Red even theorized that she could have been stricken with early onset dementia that sprung from a case of bovine tuberculosis. I think that uh, the inclusion of this bit really makes you know, for a fascinating look at history in general. There, there's still quite a lot we don't understand about mental illnesses to this day. Imagine being in the Middle Ages and watching someone go through some of the things mentioned. Ergot poisoning has been famously linked to many events, though not proved, like the Salem Witch Trial and the so-called Dancing Plague. With this, she would have definitely seen visions, and as we learned from the Weird Experiments episode, that Ergot is, is the way in which LSD was found. You combine any of these ideas with the fact that all the information she had obtained, she'd heard through the grapevine, so to speak, of her town. Lone exceptions are the uh, picking Charles out of the crowd, which nobody knows if that was really what happened, and the mentioned magical sword that she had found, or had somebody find for her. And in my mind, those examples could be ones where she, you know, heard about them secondhand. I have no way of knowing, but the King Switcheroo trick could have been, you know, really done by a tell by someone in the audience that day. Maybe they believed in her so heavily that they couldn't contain themselves by constantly looking at the actual king. Maybe she heard from one random member of the clergy of a sword that was located at, at the church. She definitely had heard about the ongoing war and the feelings that the people from her village held about it. The voices could be attributed, like I mentioned, to a few of the aforementioned illnesses. Also, remember when I mentioned that a lot of the visions early on took place when the bell was ringing? That's why people kind of link uh, epileptic fits to high strain, uh, either intense imaging, lighting, and sounds. Now, I don't think this necessarily cheapens the legacy that she has either uh, to say that she was afflicted. 
So many people in history had these without us knowing, but even people like Caesar were epileptic. It was once a sign of divinity itself. Even looking at her life and story as if she were afflicted, that might be more impressive to me. To go from being a peasant girl not knowing how to read or write, gaining an audience with the king was next to impossible anyway. But she did it. No training on how to fight, right into battle, but she did it. Not knowing first thing about tactics, planning, and she did help on some level with that as well. She impresses me no matter what angle you think of her in. And ultimately, I'm in the latter portion of this episode myself, but, you know, Joan's ability to overcome all of these obstacles on top of maybe being, you know, stricken with a mental illness is insane. And she set forth motions that would shape the very world which we know today. You know, that's all mighty impressive. So with that, we end our story wrap up with some of the fun facts we learned today. What a story, what a lady. Joan did more by the age of 19 than most men in her village did their whole lives. One of the things that stuck out most to me was... You know, her tenacity. She had speared in spades and entered the fray when the French seemed were, you know, lost. They seemed like nothing was going to win or help them. A lot of mind tricks and mental warfare games going on. And I believe that, you know, while the English hoped she was, you know, devil sent, that they were scared that she was for real. And is why they retreated a lot when she entered the battles. Joan was a part of 13 total battles and the French were victorious in nine of them. That's a relatively decent winning percentage. And if you don't die in those battles, that's really all that matters. Also how insanely confusing medieval lineages were. Who gets, <laughs> who gets what thrown because who banged whose cousin? I don't know. The obsession with a woman in a man's clothing is also wild to me. I get it. You want a woman to be a woman and not to confuse you or make you feel any type of way. Well, creepy old timey things. That's one interesting thing I did find was that uh, the resurgence of the bob haircut. The One of the main stylists who kind of inspired this said that he took inspiration from paintings of Joan, which I think is kind of cool. Also, another thing I found in my research that didn't exactly know where to put it was that um, there's some... Who now wonder if Joan might have been trans is an interesting idea but there's just so little information about her non-combat non-trial life that we have no way of knowing if that is even remotely true or not either way Joan had you know the most nicknames of anyone I've ever read about holy cow that wasn't one of them <laughs> no in a letter she dictated to Charles VII she had signed Joan LaPosselle which was you know means the maid main meaning something vastly different back then mostly meaning virgin but also could just mean married unmarried young woman aka Jean d'Arc as written by the court she was tried at in the court when asked about her name she said that the women in her village took the mother's name so she would have been Jean Remy or Rome uh then she was also later dubbed Joan the maid of Orléans or La Pucelle d'Orléans due to you know her help in the victory of that city so many names did you also know that she has living relatives? Of course, not direct line because, you know, she <laughs> was a virgin, but she had three brothers and a sister. And one of such note is uh, Clotilde Forgeau d'Arc. She is a direct descendant of Joan's brother, Pierre, apparently. This is disputed as some believe that Pierre's line ended around the 17th century. Clotilde's great-grandfather was given permission to rename his children the Ark by Charles X in 1827. Either way, this girl does look a lot like the paintings of Joan. I know many of them were painted after her death, so you could probably just get any, you know, pale-skinned brunette with short hair and say it was her, but I guess, you know, kind of neat. Clotilde was even uh, in the annual Joan Festival last year, the 593rd one, which is cool. She dressed up as La Pucelle, armor and all, riding a horse, carrying a banner, she even does tours around Orléans. She'll like go from one place to another in around the area. 
issue more than the reenactors at the historic locations near your town? No clue, but it is pretty cool. Also, I found that David Byrne of the Talking Heads fame wrote and composed a musical of Joan's uh, story. Joan of Arc, Into the Fire, debuted in 2017. Reviews are mixed. And then also all of the movies. Uh, you know, there's there's The Messenger that I had mentioned. And then there's also uh, The Passion of Joan of Arc, which is a silent film, which you can find on YouTube. Anyway, that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for sticking around. I hope you enjoyed this one. I know I did. I hope the first biography type episode was one you enjoy i don't think i could have picked a better topic to begin with than joan the entire story is remarkable especially if you do believe she was stricken with a mental illness because that obstacle is hard for many people to overcome and she did it in one of the most impressive ways you can in one of the worst times to be a woman i think in in a big chunk of time uh only thing that would have been more impressive is she if she would have managed to take over england or something Next week, we continue with both the biography theme and the French theme. Napoleon, that's right, one of history's most notorious leaders. While his military prowess is exceedingly impressive, nobody past the 20th century would remember him for being anything other than short. Not really, but it does feel that way. Next week, we'll learn about all we can about the little th Just kidding. I know. I know he wasn't actually that short, but the jokes write themselves. We will cover his grand campaigns and his interesting life. You like Egyptian artifacts? Napoleon, thank him. Anyway, learn all of that more next week. And that's it for this week. Thank you again for listening. Please share us wherever possible. Continue ratings and reviews us all at all the places. If you have a topic you want me to cover, email me at remedialscholar at gmail.com. All the links are in the description. And have a great week, everybody.